Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Joining me today is Mike Johnston, talking about innovation and fundraising. Mike, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here and uh, look forward to, to the chat together. Awesome. So before we get into the topic, I'm curious to know your superhero origin story. That is to say, you know, how did you get started working with nonprofits? Yeah, it, it is a um, pretty circuitous path for a lot of people. It's the same way. I mean, I originally was trained in the 80s as a classic uh, Cold War analyst. So studied Russian language, uh, Russian politics and history and warfare studies. And I, I thought I'd be working for NATO. Um, but Back in the political studies I was doing in the 80s, I knew the nonprofit sector existed. So there was this third sector, knew there was government, knew there was uh, the commercial sector. And I, I did know the nonprofit sector was there. And and I stumbled in the, in the late 80s uh, into a direct mail fundraising firm, uh, one of the first in North America, and, uh, and had a chance to start from there. So I've been been working in the sector since the 80s, but that was not the path, um, but been a passionate person inside the sector ever since. And because I'm not really good at introducing my guests, I was wondering if you could just bring people up to speed on where you are today, sure. maybe talk about your books and, and some of the um, the work you've been doing and some of the companies you uh, you manage. Yeah. So, so like I was saying, started at a company in the 80s called Stephen Thomas. And uh, they were pioneers in indirect response fundraising. And so really formative years uh, learning from Steve Thomas and others in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, about just applying rigor and technique uh, to fundraising. But it was traditional channel. And I'd say uh, early 90s. Uh, just started to get the sense, and I guess it was spidey sense before it happened, but I just thought there was a better way to put channels together uh, to reach people. And, and then 94, 95, uh, there was a fellow, Ken Sarawiwa. He was a Nigerian activist uh, it, uh, who was uh, fighting for freedoms in Nigeria, and he was imprisoned. Um, and uh, there was a woman in need erotic, and she she founded the body shop, and she's someone who wanted to do something new. And so we, we met one another, and we started doing our first online campaigns. So right around the same time in the early 90s, had left Stephen Thomas and started uh, Hewitt & Johnston Consultants, uh, HJC, uh, as a small, really traditional agency. And then once we started working with Anita, started thinking about uh, the digital world and had a partner, George Irish, who's with Amnesty now. And I remember sitting in a room and we kind of laid out, I think it was like a five-page article in the mid-90s on how nonprofits could leverage digital and combine it with other channels. We used it for the Ken Sarawiwa campaign. And then we started to to talk and help other organizations uh, in that mid and late 90s um, look at digital. So it was unexpected, came from different areas. And then ever since from the 90s until now, just trying to share, trying to create best practice knowledge, uh, trying to publish books um, that talk about integrated marketing and, and online and digital fundraising. Uh, and been sharing and growing alongside nonprofits ever since. 
the, the funny thing is, I think, Alex, I'm absolutely an omnivorous person. So maybe that was the start when I um, was supposed to be working for NATO, um, just loving history and politics and the flow of technology changes, and then just trying to combine all of those things together over the years has just deposited me now uh, in 2023, um, just looking at technology as an enabler, uh, understand the, the historical context, maybe as a historian, um, of where we've come from and where we are now. So it's uh, the last thing I'd say about omnivorousness is just tend to look at the whole world as a comparative place. And I think maybe that was my political science and historical training, that comparative knowledge is so darn important for our sector. And that means for me, I omnivorously try to see what's going on in technology and fundraising in Asia and, and bring that back to North America or share North American experience over to Europe and and so we tend, as a company at HJC, and for the work that I do, we tend to look at best practice technology fundraising and just best practice social change management as something that needs to be shared from country to country because there's different contexts, there are new innovations and ideas that come from different places. So, so that's, you know, from that late 80s, starting in direct mail, starting in digital in the mid-90s and now ending up um, kind of in a globalized uh, way, helping organizations with technology and fundraising around the world, just trying to add all of that experience over time. And, and Alex, super important, sharing that knowledge. So for me, it's writing books so I can share out what we've learned, whether that's uh, research and white papers um, we just published the Digital Outlook report, our seventh report, just absolutely driven to to share amongst all of my brothers and sisters in the social impact sector. That's an impressive background, and I'm looking forward to jumping into this discussion. Maybe I'll start with a question, maybe keep it broad, and then we can get down to more specifics. I'm curious to know, given your, your extensive history, uh, what are some recent trends you've noticed in technology uh, related to fundraising? Yeah, I, I think if we look back historically, uh, the technology, Alex, was hard to use. So whether that was technology for donation forms, uh, that whether that was email management systems, whether that was um, really CMS uh, for managing websites, uh, or um, the CRMs of where the data was resident, you needed developers almost. You you needed technology veterans to be able to manipulate and use the technology in the nonprofit. It's clear over the last number of years that technology in all of those different areas is being democratized. These are tools that people can more easily use in an organization and they don't need to have the title of uh, IT person or technologist, they can be marketers, uh, they can be event people, uh, they can be even senior management. So I, I think one of the most important technology trends has just been the transition to the tools being easier to use and can be used by anybody. I mean, that that is a profound change. Um, and I'm sure you've seen that uh, in your work as well. So 
I mean, that is a trend, not just recent, but technology being easier to use. And I, I think the other is what's in front of us right now. So I think the, the rise of AI, large language models, um, is that new piece we need to understand um, and match it with these easy-to-use donation form platforms, easy-to-use CRMs. How do we take what's new in front of us and connect it to the easier-to-use technology pieces? Um, does that make sense? It does. And in speaking to the first point, we had a guest on just a couple of weeks ago talking about how she built her own SaaS using uh, this low-code, no-code system that yes. allowed her as a non-technical person to build this fantastic tool that she now uses for grants to help um, nonprofits you know, apply for grants. So totally agree with the first one. And mm -hmm. second one, AI, of course, I mean, that's obviously the hot topic these days. And I would say that the commonality between the two of them is leverage. The, the leverage, the tool, the ability to, to do more as one person has become greater over the last few years. Would you say that would be a good I synopsis? I think that's true. Yeah. I, I, yeah, absolutely. But you know, the one thing that's really interesting in the way you describe that is, um, I think when you look at people's, I don't know, not job description, but the attributes they need to bring to it. If it's true, Alex, that the tools are easier to use, then there needs to be, I don't know, a personal attribution of the people who are manipulating the technology to be a little bit courageous and not afraid to break things. I think about our managing partner at HJC. She is uh, an engineer by training. And it's funny when we're in the office um, over the last number of years where maybe there's a pipe that's broken or there's something leaking behind the wall in the office kitchen. Alex, she takes a hammer, runs over to the wall and just smashes the wall open. <laughs> and looks inside to see what's going on. So I think it's the same that I think people are reticent and they're afraid that they're going to break things uh, when they manipulate technology. And I think as it becomes easier to use, if that's true, then people just need to have that I'm not afraid to break things um, attitude so they don't stop from using it, right? Or they're not reticent uh, to fully jump in and test things out. I think that idea of um, courageousness is super important as technology is democratized. So. It, it's also not just a matter of breaking, but I think it's a matter of failing. It's okay to fail in mm -hmm. some way, to, to mm -hmm. learn from those lessons and apply it. But I mean, obviously there's a concern that if you do break the system as it's working today, that it will cause some serious harm to your organization. So are there any kind of mitigation strategies that you can apply or recommend to say maybe you should do it in a, in Salesforce, we have something called a sandbox, right? Which is really a playground yeah, for you to right. test new things before you actually implement it into your production, into your operations. So that you can, you can go hardcore, you can smash those walls and you can rebuild yep. your house if you really want to, doing it in a safe context before applying it. Are there other kinds of ways of doing that uh, generally? Yeah. yeah, the one thing that comes to mind is what, what I'd call maybe the dummies guide, the codification, right, of of what to be careful about and how to fix problems. So as maybe we'll call it as the layperson uh, becomes more of a, a technology manipulator in a nonprofit, for us at HJC, it just means that we need to codify 
um, and create guidebooks, uh, to create uh, clear uh, dummies guides uh, on technology to make people comfortable and also uh, to make sure that they go sh- through checklists to make sure they uh, they don't make mistakes. I mean, they're, they can be fixed and, and connect that codification and guidebook uh, with sandboxes. So connecting those two things together. Yep. Raising world don't always think that the technology can help them, or maybe they're afraid of it in a certain extent. Like I've noticed that there's sometimes where tech is an afterthought in this in the fundraising world. Uh, any comments on that? Do you do you agree, disagree, or any way we can make tech more, either more, not we can say more accessible, but less of a fear for fundraisers? Yeah. I mean, how is technology more of an afterthought or why are we a step behind in the nonprofit sector compared to the commercial sector? I I mean, in part, it's because we have limited budgets. By having limited budgets, we have less staff. We have less expertly trained staff. We have smaller professional development budgets. Uh, We have to compete for IT staff. Uh, And because of that, um, and the conservative nature uh, that goes along with it, we are usually a step behind. Um, so it's not that it's an afterthought. I think we just have limited resources and a more conservative nature in adopting either new things or technology adjuncts um, for us to leverage technology in a way in fundraising and relationship management that, I don't know, matches the power of what's out there and matches what the consumer is used to on the consumer side versus the philanthropy side. So, I mean, it is an eternal challenge, but I think one way we get around that is to be as smart as possible to get, I don't know, potent, (laughs) but affordable IT and technology people. Um, We just published uh, the seventh annual uh, digital Outlook Report. Uh, it's at digitaloutlookreport.com. And that report digs into the human resource hacks, really the hacks that we need to deploy in our sector to find effective people to, to fight against that conservative nature, to fight against technology being an afterthought because of those limited budgets. So I think finding the right people um, fights against that cultural and, and resource dynamic that pushes technology farther back in the nonprofit sector than it needs to be. You know, that's, I, that, those are the things that come to mind. Yeah, I agree with the step behind, but I would also say that I think it's normal that nonprofits are not on the cutting edge of technology. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand that you know there's certain tech companies and, and for-profit companies that that can you know adopt the earliest. CRM or the earliest, um, you know, shiny new toy kind of thing. But I, can't, I, I, I have, don't think it would be a good idea for nonprofits to be in that cutting edge. Um, I, I usually tell people generally they should be, you know, a few steps behind, maybe one step behind now because there are so many steps are, are so small these days that if you're too many steps behind, you're, you're years behind, so to speak. But at least, um, you know, to be aware of, of certain trends, to be aware of AI. But I'm, I'm wondering... In your opinion, how close or how cutting edge should a nonprofit really be? If they had all the budget in the world, let's say, or you know, constraints aside, should they actually be on the cutting edge, or is it safer because of 
you know, X, Y, Z reasons that they should be maybe one step behind to make sure that tech is kind of secure uh, and reliable and has a long-term lifespan versus, you know, things that appear on the radar, which are really cool, but then they don't last for so long or not well-supported, for example. Yeah, I, I think you're on the right path. I think that perspective is correct. The one thing I would say, I mean, cutting edge, if it fuels mission, right? So is it worth being cutting edge if it drives directly to you um, having more resources? It's worth the risk of, and because if it pays off, you have more resources to pursue mission, or if that cutting edge technology is actually at the heart of who you are and what you do um, in, in whatever vertical that you serve, whether it's, you know, social justice or um, social services or environmental. I mean, it is worth pushing uh, cutting edge technology if it's worth the risk to make the world better. Um, but I think on average, like you were saying, it makes sense to to be a step back. The one thing I wanted to make sure, Alex, that we talked about is how that afterthought idea of technology around fundraising and mission we found one profound way to change it from an afterthought, and that is to be able to show and to be able to talk to senior management and senior decision makers about how technology can help the organization on so many different levels than the way it's been talked about before. So, for example, in the area of fundraising, um, I was at a hospital foundation yesterday, and they are going into a multi-multi-billion dollar building campaign. And sitting with the CEO and senior management, by having a conversation on how technology can play a role in stewarding and finding multi-million dollar donors, how it can play a role in the stewardship and cultivation to people who will leave a bequest in their will, as well as the technology role in brand projection in this massive campaign over the next few years, that gets a CEO's attention. I mean, she immediately yesterday focused and said, we need to invest more in technology and digital we need to have the right people on board. We need to make the right investments to improve it. So it, it is a philanthropic consumer experience that will capture people, whether it's a million-dollar donor or a bequest person or someone who is making a monthly gift. So I think one thing that's been missing, Alex, and why it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's an afterthought is because a lot of the technology uh, either consultants and or internal staff are talking at the bottom of the pyramid and they stay there. And so by doing that, the decision makers and the people who interact with technology and technology investments are lower down the hierarchical chain of the organization. And I think once we show and can show case studies and numbers and reasons that technology investment and making in the world of fundraising technology more than an afterthought because it can help the CEO and the SVP of major gifts. The whole conversation changes, becomes more central to who the organization is. And, and that means more investment happens and all of that. And I, I, I see a gap there. I don't see people doing a very good job having that conversation with senior management. 
So what are some ways to have better conversations and or bring technology to the forefront of the conversation? I mean, you mentioned the idea of, we talked about no code, low code, leveraging that AI, mm -hmm. uh, having the conversation with executives. Are there any kind of ways that we can just make sure that technology becomes now a one of the initial thoughts um, of fundraising as opposed to the, the afterthought? Yeah. I, I mean, there are a bunch of different levels here. One, one is that we often say, let's work on a strategic level and let's work on a tactical level. There's this great quote from a World War II general uh, in the American army, Omar Bradley. And he said, strategy is for amateurs. Logistics are for professionals, meaning anybody can make a broad, breezy strategy, but the execution of that um, demands so much. And so for us to, to improve the conversation around technology, we work on both fronts. So for senior management, they want to make sure that there is, for example, a dramatic oversimplification of digital as it relates to the overall strategy of the organization. So a one-page strategy map on digital and its integration with other things. So working with the board and senior management, we dramatically oversimplify <laughs> digital and technology in a strategy map. Second, again, we steal from the commercial sector. Southwest Airlines created something called the balance scorecard a number of years ago. And it's the balance scorecard is a way to put to pour in benchmarks and KPIs and tactical activities tied to strategic pillars that is bottom up. So it goes from the bottom of the organization to the top. So explaining what a balanced scorecard is with Southwest Airlines. When Southwest Airlines created the balanced scorecard, they wanted a way for people who would be standing on the tarmac waving their little wands right, moving planes in and out to see how they, in their day-to-day -day activities, connected all the way up to shareholder value. And so the balanced scorecard on one piece of paper had activities and KPIs, let's say, to move planes, move a plane in faster, right, have people debark, get people on board, and it departs more quickly. That flows all the way up the food chain to profitability and shareholder value. And someone who's sitting on the tarmac could see that. And so we do the same when it comes to technology and digital fundraising. Build a balanced scorecard that has the people who are taking care of the website, the people who are making the donation forms, the people who are sending out the emails can see how they fit into a digital strategy and a tactical execution to raise more money, to create longer lifetime value for a donor. And you see that on dramatically on one piece of paper as well. So all of that needs to be done to make sure that everyone understands the role of digital from senior management down. And it lays out the tactical execution that technology uh, and human beings play to, let's say, reach their fundraising goal. So it's, it's using commercial techniques, bringing them all together, and then executing all of that. Because what happens, Alex, is, is um, both um, people who are helping from the outside who know digital tactics and technology, working with staff inside, and it's kind of an incestuous 
amplification of tactical execution at the bottom of the pyramid uh, in a in a churning way where senior management is not connected to what's happening, nor do the people who are executing digital fundraising seeing all the way up uh, and how they fit into the plans that a board has come up with and or um, senior management have come up with. So all of those things need to be connected and, and we love doing that. And it's so much fun. Speaking of connected, there's this concept of omnichannel, of being able to, for, for a nonprofit organization, to communicate to donors, to fundraisers, to um, volunteers um, through multiple channels, not just one, mm-hmm. like the website, but also through Facebook, through social media, through various other mechanisms. And it's been a while since I've actually heard about Omnichannel, like in the sense of its popularity, from my perspective at least, has gone down just a little bit. And I'm curious to know if I'm just alone in that thought or if it's growing or changing and and you know, what is the future of Omnichannel? Yeah, that is, that's super interesting. I mean, what was it a buzz phrase, buzzword? Absolutely. I think... I would say 15 years ago, at least in the nonprofit sector, as digital became more important, as the fundraising platforms bec- became more potent, quite a number of us in the US and Canada started to study what we would call the halo effect, right? I mean, what happens when you combine channels together? And it was unequivocal that for in our test and control studies, where if we left people just in digital, if we added the telephone to digital, if we just had, uh, if we had a control or a test group that would get digital plus telephone plus mail, it, it's, it is absolutely certain in the studies that people stayed longer and they gave more and they gave more often if we combine channels together. And, and what we saw in studies, we work with Blackbaud on uh, first Convio, which then became Luminate, uh, was bought by Blackbaud. Uh, back in 2010, we created the first next generation of giving studies in the U.S. and Canada and then spread them to other countries because we tried to crack at uh, the, the demographic and channel choice side where we, we had an inkling and a feeling and we were doing tests that showed when we combined channels in what we would call, I guess, omni-channel marketing, that if we combine channels together, then we kept people longer and they gave more money. And so moving laterally, we wanted to do some research and we interviewed 1,500 people in the U.S., 1,500 people in Canada and we broke it out methodologically and empirically correctly in different age subsets, you know, Gen Z, Gen X, Gen Y, boomers, and civics. Uh, and we wanted to see what channel choices they were making. And it was pretty clear uh, that the late adopter, um, older age subsets were liking traditional channels and giving through those channels, but they were adding other channels. Um, and same with younger age subsets. And Alex, you'd be surprised that that younger age subsets, so uh, Gen Y and others, were they liked direct mail as much as older folks. They just weren't giving through that channel, but they loved getting a welcome package. And so we we just know now through these studies over the last decade that all age subsets are truly omnivorous in the channels that they use. They just use them and are influenced them in different ways that brand awareness may happen with a younger donor 
with a traditional channel, but they're going to be solicited and give through a, a, a more digitally driven channel. But if we combine them together, we know statistically it keeps people on board. And we also know through demographic studies that all age subsets are quite omnivorous in the channels they use to interact with a nonprofit. So it's funny that it's diminished. I think it's diminished because the bright, shiny conversation of omni-channel has gone away, the bright, shiny thing. But I think for best practice practitioners out there, they're just forging ahead, creating multi-channel programs because it's already been proven they work. And they've seen the studies that say that all age subsets are more like that nowadays. So I'm glad I'm wrong because I do appreciate the fact that you offer more than one way to communicate with people. But at the same time, I always thought that there's a certain inundation where it's just, how does an organization you know, do everything, right? How do they do telephone mm-hmm. and direct mail and website and social media? It can be a lot, but if, it, if the trend does show that it, it works um, for different audience members, uh, and I do appreciate the, the direct mail part too. I, I think the younger audience, it's more of a novelty now where you mm-hmm. know, back in the day, of course, direct mail was very, very popular. Uh, that was the only choice versus now it's like a treat where you know, if you yeah. get I can't remember the last time. Actually, I do remember the last time I got a handwritten thank you note from a from a subscriber, a reader on my um, yeah. newsletter, and it was it was so touching because it, it blew had been you years. away. Yeah, <laughs> handwritten, yeah. you know, thank you very much. I appreciate the newsletter, da, da. and I was yeah. like, wow, this is this is really touching, very personal, very giving, very thoughtful. So I can imagine that um, yeah. That everyone, you know, getting that kind of thing in the mail would would have a large impact. Well, Alex, think about it. It's like the, I mean, they call it the rise of analog, right? With with younger age subsets. So yes. people buying, you know, if you go on Spadina Avenue in Toronto, where our office used to be, I mean, there you can buy record players, right? And there's thousands of records that you can, and the people that are in there are all age subsets. So this. It's the same with board games. It is the golden age of board games. And because people are looking for an analog sideshow from their digitally um, loaded lives. Um, and so I think it's the same with people getting a welcome package in the mail when they're a younger, not older donor. Yep, absolutely. I wonder too if if COVID had an impact on that in a sense of just being so physically apart and now wanting to be more in person, like these board games. I, I also get together with friends for board game night, and it's it's a treat. It's a pleasure. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen very often, but when it does, it's it's magical. There's something you know to be said about in person, face to face around a game versus doing it you know through the internet kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but just to pick up on your really good point, Alex, that like how do organizations afford to do it? I I think they just need to. I think it's worth reading the studies, right, about omni-channel, and it's worth them looking at the uh, the studies, like the next generation of giving studies, and then they have to choose, right, w- which limited combination. So they might not be able to afford everything, but but which channels do they use in combination and, and see how that works? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. You can't do it all, so pick the ones that work best for you. And I'm yeah. looking at that... Um, Digital Outlook report, and I can see what's interesting is that the biggest trends tend to be telemarketing has gone up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And the I don't know has gone down. So there seems to be less ambiguity, and it's more like 
a plan. We, there, the question was, in which of the following channels do you plan to increase your overall budget? Mm-hmm. So telemarketing was going up, but the, and the I don't know was going down, which is good because it indicates that there seems to be a, um, a trend toward we want to do get into more channels or at least uh, specifically known channels as opposed mm-hmm. to not having a plan at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There was another point that you kind of underlined or subphrased was about um, loyalty. And I was curious to know, um, is there a, should there be an emphasis on keeping existing donors uh, versus finding new ones? Because there's always a balance between where do you put your efforts, you know, new clients in the sales world versus existing ones. Any, any thought to that um, balance between loyalty and uh, new donors? It is interesting. If you look at the digital outlook report, um, we asked people which are you, you know, prioritizing loyalty, um, reactivation, or acquisition. It's an exactly 50-50 split, a, a Solomon-like sword right down the middle. Um, but I think it's it's more where the organization is. So is it a younger organization, right? That growth is the priority. Uh, is it an older organization with a, a longtime loyal base? Uh, I, I think that's part of, you know, where are you in your organization's maturity? Where are you in your strategic priorities? Like, is growth the most important thing I, or not? Or is it efficiency in fundraising? Because there is, without a doubt, it is lower cost to keep existing donors than the cost to find uh, new donors. And so if it is cheaper, multi-channel and digital to keep people on board and net revenue, right? Fundraising effectiveness is the highest priority. Then you would shift more resources to uh, increasing loyalty and retention and average gift and upgrades and a moves management approach of deepening loyalty. But if the strategic priority is to grow your brand and, and to get bigger and to have more impact in a wider sense, then growth may be the thing. So our study shows that people are 50-50, but I think if you dig into the digital outlook 50-50 Solomon-like finding, I think it it's who is saying which on which side of that. And um, I think organizations just need to match what they're doing um, with their strategic plans and, and vision. So, any Any thoughts to helping the the nonprofit keep that loyalty. I mean, um, I imagine there's some standard practices. Anything that catches your eye in terms of something new that they can use, new technology yep. per, se, per se, or new new ways of interacting with people. Obviously, we talked about direct mail, which I think is a, is a great one. Any other elements yep. you could add to that part of the conversation? Yeah, this is a 15-year bugbear for me. Um, so, I mean, number one is to collect information from donors in the digital space. So that could be through surveys, drip marketing, um, asking a question. If you're an animal welfare organization, are you a dog person or a cat person? <laughs> and then using that um, in, an, uh, in a platform that allows you to hyper-personalize um, the subsequent conversations or solicitations. So Alex, if you're, I'm just going to call you a cat person, I'm going to call myself a dog person. 
if I ask that question online and I put that into someone's donor record, and every time I send you, Alex, uh, I maybe I send you a solicitation and the header in that email solicitation is a cat or any social media I'm serving you in a fundraising campaign has a cat. Mike Johnston gets, if I filled out the survey and that data has gone in, that bifurcated choice where I've said I'm a dog person, the header for every solicitation and e-newsletter and social has a dog. It makes a profound difference in the results and the interaction. So the, the takeaway for anyone listening is, how do I look at those simple questions that will give me important information around mission and interest and using that with the technology platforms that you've got? We've been able to do that for 15 years. The studies we did in Texas um, a dozen plus years ago showed unequivocally that using information in that kind of dog-cat sense um, just smashes fundraising results. But no one's been doing it. So I think it goes back, Alex, to you. we have the technology platforms to hyper-personalize experiences and deepen loyalty. Uh, but either we don't have the skill sets or the time to be able to use the tools that we have in the ways that will make people more loyal and keep them on board through hyper-personalization and creating a one-on-one relationship uh, moving from mass marketing. We can do it. The technology is there. We just don't seem to have either the culture, the structure, or the skill sets to be able to execute that. The other thing we see is stealing from the commercial world. Uh, I'd say 10 years ago, we st- we stole from uh, the Stanford Design School and Oracle, uh, the, uh, a design thinking customer experience CX mapping ability uh, for us to look at how we map an improved uh, donor experience to keep people on board, to deepen the relationship. And that part dovetails beautifully with technology. So how do you have a customer experience map uh, that better leverages the technology you have, better leverages the people you have uh, to give a cross-functional kind of journey for someone to keep them on board. For the organizations we've done it for, maybe over 100, it's had a profound effect on loyalty and their more efficient use of technology. So, I mean, journey mapping uh, and collecting information and using it in a more um, focused, personalized way. I mean, those are, that's low hanging fruit um, for organizations. It makes me laugh to think that something is, and I'll use air quotes, trivial as knowing if a person is a dog person or a cat person can influence fundraising. It can. You you hear about hyper-personalization and I get that, but it's the the example you gave, uh, I wouldn't, directly associate the two, you know, the mm-hmm. fact that I have even an icon or emoticon of a cat can help the fundraising part of things. I, it's it cute and it's clever and it makes total sense now that you said it. <laughs> In the comment you said about stealing from the commercial world, I think that's a great, um, I mean, there's a lot that nonprofits can learn from the commercial world, but I think there's also taking it even a step further back. I think nonprofits can also learn from other nonprofits in other parts of the world. And we spoke a bit about this before the, the recording started, but I'm curious to know um, if what your thoughts were about um, 
how often nonprofits do look outside of their their community, outside their country, even their mm-hmm. their um, continent, to look to see how others are doing it. Because, as we said before, or you and I said before, there's chances are not every idea is novel. Like there's, the, if you have an idea of, of doing something, there's a good chance that someone else had thought about it before. But there isn't yeah. a an ability to share that globally. At least I haven't seen it yet. And I was hoping or wondering what your thoughts were about how nonprofits or if nonprofits should leverage or communicate or share information globally to help each other so that we all can can climb better and do better. Yeah. I I, I mean it's 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 a frustrating reality, right? With limited resources, right? We we're just so busy every day, it's hard for us to kind of look outside of um you know our immediate, whether that's by country or region. Uh, but there are some places where they're doing this and it's a lot of it is free information. So there is an organization I, I sit on the board of called the Resource Alliance. Uh, they are London based, but truly global. Um, years ago, we created um, an online conference called Fundraising Online or FRO. It happens every spring and we, we have practitioners from sometimes over 80 countries. Uh, participate in fundraising online, sharing what they're doing uh, in their region. So absolutely, people should go to the Resource Alliance. They should check out fundraising online or FRO. And that's either free or tiny cost, globally focused, best practice places for sharing. I mean, there is also sometimes it's Alex, it's like when people say, hey, what, what's the cheapest, best information you can get to, to guess where the stock market is going? And people say newspapers. <laughs> They're paid journalists in business. It's free. They're talking about it. Um, it's the same for us when we look at fundraising tips. So let's not forget that places like, you know, companies like Salesforce and companies like Blackbaud and um, and other companies are producing studies and information that are very helpful for you to look at benchmarking, um, what's best practice. So I, I don't think we should forget that. I think that's a place we should always be looking like what are bigger companies in the nonprofit space doing when it comes to knowledge sharing and studies? And there's lots. And I think we underestimate the value of that. They're often free. Um you know, sometimes we have to kind of download it, give our contact information and, and get bothered by a salesperson. But um, it's worth it to get information that's very hard to find. So between the Resource Alliance and organizations that are global, plus larger companies that produce research, I think those are great places to start. And, and then I think we need to make these things. So Alex, great example. There is an area of fundraising that's often said to be missing and that's middle donor giving so the missing middle a few years ago someone in the u.s mark rovner created a list serve yes in 2023 i'm talking about a list serve and it has about 800 middle donor giving officers who share everything they do it's invitation only through mark and you have 800 people sharing best practice every day of the year I think we need more of that in the digital space. I'm not sure why um, it doesn't exist. There are places like N10 um, that 
that have places online to share it, but I think we need to do a better job of, of creating those safe spaces to, to share back and forth. Hope that makes sense. It does. And I'm curious to know, because uh, we're, we're looking at the clock here, mm-hmm. in terms of your, your short-term future or the short-term future for um, innovation in fundraising, obviously AI is, is the big elephant in the room, but any mm-hmm. other trends that you see are happening that are or, or things that you like and or looking forward to in the near future? Yeah, I think it's back to this point, Alex, of the whole, what I'll call the whole pyramid, right? So what's, what's technology's role um, helping an organization in a fundraising sense from the bottom of the pyramid to the very top? And like I was saying earlier, I think we've been missing the top half when we talk about the role of technology helping in fundraising. So for us in the short term, I think it's it's furthering the conversation with senior management and the whole organization on how technology helps from the beginning, the middle, and the end of someone's life cycle. I think that's it. This life cycle management, um, taking a look at someone's whole journey um, from small gift to million-dollar gift, uh, I think we'll be spending a heck of a lot of time on how technology can play a better role there. Mike, this has been great. Lots of great insights here. I was curious to know if you could share with, uh, you've mentioned a few links already, but if you could share, uh, how can people get in touch with you? Maybe download the digital report, learn more about HJC. How can get, people get in touch with you online? Yeah, people can email me at mjohnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N, at hjcnewmedia.com. Uh, they can just hunt me down on LinkedIn uh, and uh, hjcnewmedia.com is one of our company's websites and and really like just at this moment in time if people go to digitaloutlookreport.com that is the seventh study of digital for the nonprofit sector it's just out uh, go grab that and uh and then bug me with questions after you've read the report awesome and we'll put those links in the show notes below mike Great. thank you so much for joining me today Pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.